Hey, ¿qué pasa, Calexico? Welcome back to the podcast. Um, before we begin today, like always, I want to thank some people. I want to take, uh, I want to thank David Norikumbo for letting me um, record today's episode here at La Resaca in El Centro. He also has um, stores in Calexico and in Yuma, so make sure to go check it out. Make sure you go check out La Resaca. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited and nervous for today's um, episode. Um, I reached out to this guy for a while now. And just scheduling has been, you know, kind of tough for both of us. So, but I was super excited this morning when you reached out. Um, today's guest is Ernesto Arellana. Thank you for being here today. Oh, man, no worries. I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, you know, Ernesto is an El Centro um, guy. He's from El Centro. He was, he kind of lived here and in Mexicali. Um, mm. And he's, you know, he's been doing a lot of big things. And, and I'm super excited to have him. And, Super excited to to you know kind of like scratch his, his brain a little bit and and you know get to see how um, you know he's accomplished what he has and in, in all this time um, and I so thank you for being here and normally uh, what I do is I let my guests tell us a little bit about themselves for the first part so you can you tell us a little bit about yourself Yeah you know it's funny because every time we do that anytime I do an interview or you know I go and do something. I always explain to people where I'm from. So every time I do something back home, it's like, oh, we get to skip that. Um, but I guess I'll just kind of, I'll still do it, but I'll do it more. The cliff notes. Yeah, the, more tight, though, because, like, I was, you know, pretty much born and raised in El Centro. Uh, I had family in Mexicali. I grew up over there. I never lived in Mexicali, but I my my parents were from Mexicali. And when I was a baby, we actually lived in um, Calexico. And so then from the Calexico, I was, like, really little, a couple months old, and we moved to to the uh to the north side like um what was it called uh, like adams area okay and like we lived there for a little bit and then someone tried to like break in while we were in there while my mom and me were in there my dad was working like painting a car and so we moved out of there and then we just moved in the west side like we lived all over the place but yeah definitely like born and bred down here you yeah know? it's crazy um and it, i i know how you you know got your big break but can you tell you know Cause I, I've I've seen a couple of videos that you've done in on YouTube and whatnot, and I, I know the story how it kind of went, and it's kind of like, um, I I I guess it kind of reminds me a little bit like uh, the Andy Ruiz story, like he wasn't supposed to be there, but at the end of the day, you know, he you know he was placed in the right the right place at the right moment, and you know, yeah. you know, shit went down, and now you know, you're up here, and then Andrew is also also up here, but oh, he's way up there. I'm like in the <laughs> middle, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm just hanging out a little bit right there in the middle but yeah tell us like how you went well i mean first of all um, were, when you were a kid were you somebody that always drew or somebody yeah. that you know carried yeah, yeah. a sketchbook all that i time? didn't carry a sketchbook but i was always drawing i've been drawing since i was two my mom's got my drawings since i was a kid um my dad used to work at dry automotive i don't know if some of the folks from the valley here would know where dry automotive is where the labor ready uh, office is now right here on eighth and uh 8th and, and Imperial right uh, across the street from the, the fire station. Yeah. And I used to live right around there. Um, that place used to be a place called Dry Automotive. My dad used to be the paint salesman there. And uh, one day, I must have been like six or seven, my dad, his whole crew at work were getting ready to do um, an expo at uh, right there right at uh, Imperial Valley Expo for mm -hmm. the Midwinter Fair. And uh, they were put, bringing pieces together and one of the guys that worked there had like a harley davidson fender and it had like it was like bright magenta you know pearl uh flames on like a purple 
background and it was insane. You know, I was, I was like seven and it blew my mind. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I asked my dad, how do they do that? And he's like, well, they use airbrush and they use this and that. And, and I was like, can you show me? He's like, I don't know how to do that, man, but <laughs> I could show you how to make stencils and then you can make stencils. You can figure it out. And I was like six or seven. And by the time, like I started cutting stencils really young, by the time I was, um, like seven, I was cutting them using like a regular flat, like razor blade. And then I would take like tape, sorry, I would take tape and uh, kind of wrap it around the handle to make it thicker so it wouldn't cut me. And then I would use it as like a holder. And then my grandpa saw me uh, doing that once and he's like, I want to get you an exacto. And he got me an exacto for like my ninth birthday. So it was like a couple years before I was already using the regular blades before I got like an exacto. And that was a game changer. So I've been, yeah, I've been using, man, I'm 33 now. I've been using blades since I was like seven and uh I don't, I don't know it's a trip because like most parents wouldn't let their kids have knives like yeah. that you know but I was around that kind of culture um I had spray paint spray cans I had my own little spray gun um you know we would that was kind of my playground hanging out at the shops with the cars you know that's cool well I mean it kind of shows now um how that you know that background of you know your artwork comes from like you know growing yeah. there. I can imagine how it you know influenced your artwork. Your artwork as a you know doing it now. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, my shop now looks like an auto body shop. <laughs> like everything, I have I have compressors in there. I have spray guns. Um, it's modeled after like customized auto body shops. Like that's what my shop looks like. But it's a design studio and it's an art like a fine art studio. But I modeled it after that because that's kind of what I grew up on. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, were you always, as a kid, were, was, it, was it something that was, like, um, taught to you that you were, you know, a Chicano? Or was it something that, yeah. you know? No. I mean, as a kid, it was like you were just... I was When I was a kid, I didn't even want to call myself American. I was just Mexican, you know? And obviously, I was Mexican-American. I was born here. But I didn't... You grew up in that, you know, a lot of my, like, me becoming uh, socialized happened in Mexicali. You know, all my best friends were all my neighbor, my, my grandma's neighbors, all the kids from the neighborhood were always hanging out. And there was always that tension between, like, the Mexican kids and the Mexican-American kids. But for me, I was like, I grew up down there. Like, so, like, not that I grew up down there. I lived here, but all my socializing was down there. All my family was down there, and and I I would just always be down there. Like I lived here, but I wouldn't hang out with the kids on, in my neighborhood. You know, like I'd wake up, we'd go to church, or we'd go do something, and then we'd go straight back. And so before I even started kindergarten, like all the kids I knew were only spoke Spanish, and so and they had that sentiment, kind of like they didn't like, they looked down at like kids growing up over here, mm-hmm. you know. Because they felt like those kids probably thought they were better than them. You know, there's all that tension of, like, classism and, you know, the kids over here knew English and the, the kids over there didn't. And, like, a lot of the kids over there couldn't cross over here. And the kids that grew up over here that had family were the ones that are, were able to, like, have the privilege of being able to go over there and come back. And so they, it created, like, you know, there was definitely some, like, class envy and, like, some... some uh, it created tension, you know, and so, but when I was a kid, I didn't really, I would see myself on the other end of that, like, you know, because I didn't know English, um, it's not like I lived, I wasn't like living well off, you know, so there was a lot of things where I felt as I started getting older, 
even though I was living here, I spoke mostly Spanish. Like there was uh like the kids that grew up there. There's a lot of kids when I grew up, you know, I, I went into kindergarten in 1990. I remember most of the kids didn't speak Spanish and I didn't even speak English. And I wasn't, I wasn't even in bi- bilingual. Mom put me straight into English. Mm. And it was just like, I would think that they were looking down on me, you know, like I thought that, so I didn't, I didn't really want to call myself like Mexican American. And then I didn't really want to, I remember my dad, his, the Chicanos that he grew, cause it was, there's like the politicized Chicanos and there was a lot of folks like in the seventies and eighties that were, that they considered themselves Chicanos, but they weren't politicized. Like they didn't really know. They didn't really even know what that meant, but they called themselves that. So, like, the guys that my dad grew up around that called themselves Chicanos, they were, like, they were like they would talk shit to him for speaking Spanish. They would call him paisa. They would call him wetback, you know, like, and, and they would call themselves Chicanos. So, my, like, my dad hated that word, you know. It was almost reminded him of, like, when he moved here in 75, the people that were, like, shitty to him were, like, Chicanos, you know. And it was probably different than, like, L.A. Chicanos or you know, central, uh, central California Chicanos, the ones that were part of like Cesar Chavez's, uh, you know, the movement, it was probably different kind, but the ones here in the Valley, they were like, they were really proud of being like Chicanos, but they were also still shitty towards like Mexicans from Mexicali. Yeah. And we, and we still got that now, you know, but it's also, it's interesting. So my dad was like, nah, you know, and he was actually very, uh, anti-nationalist. My dad, you know, he was almost like, he was, uh, his identity was like, oh, I'm, I, pay, I paint cars and I, you know, he ended up working at the prison painting, you know, uh, being a teacher of painting cars, of uh, auto body. And that was kind of his identity. Like he's a, you know, he's a family man. He's Catholic and he works with uh, inmates teaching them how to paint. And for, for a lot of folks, like, you know, coming from Mexico, they, they come with a very nationalistic background. And then here in the U.S., it, it, the U- American way is very nationalistic. So there's like a lot of clashes. And my house wasn't like that. It was like nothing was really built around nationalism except for like me. I, I took to liking all like being really deep into like uh, like Aztec stuff and Mayan stuff because I was that that's what I had access to as a kid. I didn't know that my grand, my great grandparents were Yaki because they spoke the language, mm. but I didn't know nothing. Like I remember being, I was thinking about that yesterday. Like being at Harding, Harding Elementary, and going to the, going to like in nineteen ninety, ninety three, ninety four, going to the computer lab and like going on the internet when it was brand new, <laughs> and like looking up Yaki, like just searching like Yaki Indians, and nothing came up, like nothing. And so I was like. But if you looked up Aztec, you would find like one or two pages on like the Aztec calendar would pop up or, you know, something like the Mayan calendar would pop up. or, And so that was sort of some, that was what I was like kind of holding on to, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not Mayan, I'm not Mexica, I'm not Aztec, you know, mm. um, that's the route that I ended up going. But it was it was my idea to sorry, it was my way of resisting the way that I knew some of like the white teachers felt about me and, and because I was always so sensitive that it's not like they ever said anything outright racist, but I knew that they didn't expect shit from me, you know, like they did for some of the white students or some of the students that were like a couple generations in, yeah. you know, and I caught on to that real quick, you know. It's funny because um, like for, for me being here from the Valley, well, I mean, I, I got here when I was eight yeah. and I, I grew up and, you know, I've been living in Calexico ever since. 
Um, and I've never, uh, I've been talking to, you know, a couple of people now that I interviewed, um, uh, Carla Cordero and, and, um, uh, Pozos, Pozos, I can't remember his first name, but they're, you know, into the Chicano movement and, you know, and all this stuff. And I've never, you know, it's funny that growing up, you know, my parents never talked to me about, you know, Mexican culture, you know, even though we lived in L.A., you know, we hang out, hang out with mostly, you know, Mexican, you know, families. But it was never like a thing that, you know, oh, you know, this is our culture. This is, you know. Yeah. And wh- why do you think it's like, because I, I, my family was, you know, the first people. My, yeah. my parents were got here in 80 something. Then I grew up here. Why do you think that um, people that come here don't really, until they, I guess, is it because they, they need to face that, you know, uh, be in a situation where, you know, they're they're being um, uh, being put in a situation where there's hate because they're Mexican or hmm. brown or. Well, it's a, it's a lot of things. I think what happens is my, my experience and the way that I see it, like. A lot of folks, like our parents or grandparents, like they, they're working class people. They came here to work and they didn't have a lot of time to sit around and think. Like, I have a lot of time to sit around and think of, like, oh, this shit is fucked up, you know? And my, my family, out of survival, out of just working, out of just trying to raise us and, like, keep shit together, they didn't really have that luxury, you know? Yeah. So... They come, they work, and then they do face shit, but it's it's almost like they're so caught up of just trying to, like, they're thinking about their family, their kids, they're thinking about putting food on the table and, like, you know, progressing and getting themselves out of certain situations um, that, like, someone being shitty at work doesn't really sting as much as someone, as it stings me, you know, because I grew up in a pretty loving family. Everything was chill. Um, the neighborhood was a little shaky here back in the day, but for the most part, my parents were overprotect me. You know, they keep me away from the, the bullshit, and... So when I go to school and like maybe the teacher does say something weird, like it hit me different than it would hit my parents. Like mm. they had a higher threshold for for kind of like dirty looks or they had, you know, they can handle a lot more than I could. So because I was more sensitive and I was more had more time on my hands, I didn't like, you know, my parents, they were probably pretty young when they started working. You know, I had more time. Um, and so I had more time to investigate why I felt that way. And that's why, you know, movements and stuff come out of like, sometimes it comes out of kids that are like, that are not super privileged, but they have a little bit more time. They're, they're more middle class. Like, you know, it's it's a difference between, you know, someone here that we're 16, you know, 15, 16, and we're at home and we can, you know, listen to a record or read a book or do or watch a movie that's going to inspire us to like um, investigate our own situation rather than some. 16 or you know 15 year old kid in mexico that they got to go and you know go to work already you know you've been working since you're 13 14 you don't really have time to investigate shit and dissect things and and so that's what i feel like happens you know um for better or for worse you know um and a lot of times you know when we get a little bit like our generations people in our generations they get a little bit more privileged they get a little bit more time on their hands they don't always use it for for the better of everyone else, you know. They're just like, yo, I'm gonna just get into doing this, you know. Yeah. I'm gonna get into you know only doing that, and and I think it's because you know our generation, like we saw our parents work so hard, and so we want to be able to make sure that we uh, that we don't take that for granted, you know. Because I know why I had 
why I had more leisure time. Like I know why it was because they worked so hard. You know, they were, you know, my parents were always figuring out a way to, to like, you know, be a good team together and raise me and my brother and make sure that we weren't going to be in the same situation they were. You know? And so I think for, that's kind of where that comes out of. And then me, you know, everyone's got their own personalities. Like I'm like a very empathetic person and, and I wanted to express myself in, in that way, you know? And, and so there's a lot of folks like us that are going to have that way of, of looking at things. Yeah. Um, right now that you said that, you know, that kind of came from school, like your, your, your will to like kind of do this stuff. It's funny because when my wife tells me the story that when she was in, I don't know, elementary, she was wearing some, you know, back in the days, you, you Girls would wear these shorts with that had like some lace at the, on the edge, a mm-hmm. little bit of lace, and her teacher um, told her that she looked like a prostitute. And I was oh, like, wow. a, it was a white lady. Mm-hmm. And the worst part is that I'm not gonna say her name, but she has a school named after her. That's <laughs> hilarious. You should say that. No, because no. <laughs> no, I can't. I work at the school district, so I can't really. Oh, <laughs> I wish I knew. I would. I would roast them. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and that was one of the, because uh, today when I was, you know, kind of getting ready for today, um, I asked one of the, uh, I work at uh, Calexico High School. Mm-hmm. So um, I was asking one of the uh, teachers who uh, teaches Chicano mm-hmm. Chicano studies in our school, and he, he kind of asked me that, that how did you get him interested in, you know, the topic of, you know, the Chicano movement and all that, and mm-hmm. kind of goes back to your, you know, as a young kid where you kind of felt discriminated against at school or, or yeah. looked on upon, upon in school. Yeah, exactly. I mean, eventually it became like going to L.A. And I was at the march, like the big march, 2006, the big immigrant march. And then um, kind of like getting really into that. And then also when I was a kid, I was really big into Rage Against the Machine. I was really big into Public Enemy, Tigres del Norte, all these different bands that I pretty much I have met all of them now. Um, and I'm good friends. with you know, Zach's one of my mentors. And so... You know, that was such a big influence on me, like them making political art, you know. Yeah, I remember um, listening to Rage and not really knowing what their, you know, songs were like. I, I, I kind of knew what their songs were about, but I didn't know that, you know, where Sack was coming from, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, till like I kind of saw you with like you working with it. And I was like, man, um, I didn't know mm-hmm. that he was really <laughs> Sack was really into that, you know. The movement, I was like, that's crazy that, you know, we have somebody that... Yeah, his, I mean, his dad's a really famous Chicano artist, Beto de la Rocha. His uncle wrote the Plan de Santa Barbara, which is, um, like, the Mecha, like, the conception of, me- of Mecha. Mm-hmm. That's all his family. You know? Oh, wow, that's And crazy. then there's, like, he had, like, Diaz that were in, like, Pancho Villa's army and stuff. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So he has a lot of, you know... His story, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. No wonder he's he carries so much yeah. grudge. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's hardcore. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is like, and it's crazy because in LA, like the De La Rochas, like they're all, they're all involved in like the arts, Chicano culture, like they're a really staple family, you know, like it's pretty cool. So I'm um, go- going back to how you kind of got well because you went to school here in in in, in mm-hmm. Central and all that, and then you moved away to San Diego, was it for, mm-hmm. for school? Yeah, and that's when you had like that experience with the iPod. Oh yeah, man! <laughs> Holy shit, that's funny. <laughs> Where, where, where'd you hear that one at? I think it was um that YouTube video where you're drinking, I think. Oh, I'm drinking? Yeah, or, yeah, they make a drink. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They made a michelada for me. 
Damn, you watched that one. That was cool. That was for my friend Fed. He's yeah. actually got a new show. I gotta go. I was supposed to go this week, but I came down. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where I heard the story. So, um, can you tell a little bit the you know the, the cliff notes about that story? How how you got from you know to San Diego to kind of LA, the LA area? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you right now. I'm gonna just eat this beef jerky. <laughs> yeah, but I I got you. <laughs> you can edit this part, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I had like lunch earlier, but I'm like I'm gonna start fading out soon. <laughs> that's just too good. Have you had one before? Yeah, the yaki. No, I never, the yaki never had it. It's like a botana. Yeah, so let me get back in there. Yeah, so I was going to school in San Diego, Art Institute. I never tell tell their name, but I'll put him this time. And I'm not trying to endorse him. Like, fuck that school, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like uh, it was all right. I had some good teachers. It was all right. But it's more, it's like a rip-off school where they just charge a lot. Um, for me, it worked out because it was sort of a technical school and it had pretty decent teachers. I, I feel like everything's cool with it, but it's not. What's not cool is how much they charge. Like, they charge hard and they're very predatory on like poor people, you know, on like mm. on lower middle class people that they feel like, you know, that they, they feel like they could, they'll give you a loan, but now, now you're indebted to them. You yeah. Know? And um, I feel like. As far as, what's it called? Um, as far as, you know, there's a lot of rich kids in there. So there's a lot of kids that, like, you know, they want to make sure that their parents are proud of them so they go to college. Because it, it was an accredited school. You get a BA. And so there's a lot of rich kids just, like, their parents paying cash per month to go to the school. And they weren't really in uh, into it. And, you know, I was actually pretty uh, competitive with a lot of those kids. And that's how I got good because it was, like, you know, you know, you never really know that you grew up kind of in the hood until you go to San Diego and mm. you're a bunch of, around a bunch of rich kids. And you get there and, like, you know, I didn't even have a car. I didn't even have a cell phone. I didn't even have a wallet. I was 17. I had to borrow my little brother's wallet. Like, he was way more <laughs> responsible than me. And, like, I had a plastic wallet. I remember it was, like, this weird camouflage. It was, like, a toy wallet. And uh, I didn't even have an ID. Like, yeah. Like, I, had, I didn't even have an ID. And uh, going to school and, like, my mom would give me, like, you know, 80 bucks a month for, like, food and shit. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is, like, 2004. Yeah. And then, like, or maybe 100 bucks. And, like, I'd have, like, I'd go get quarters to make a call, you know. Like, that's how behind I was. Dang. People didn't have cell phones yet, you know. And I didn't have a car. And you go to the school, and there's Mercedes in the, co- in the in the parking lot. Like, people were just rolling through and, like, Range Rovers. And I was just, like, fuck these people, you know, like. I'm gonna just gonna fuck him up in class, and that was my mindset. It was like, I was just, I realized that they started the race, the same race that I was on. They started like six laps ahead of me, you know. And yeah. they've all had like art classes. They've had piano classes. They've had a lot of, they've had a lot of arts in their life. But I didn't, you know, I had very little. But I was hungrier than them, and so I showed up, and I was just very you know, antagonistic in my own way. You know, I didn't talk shit to them, but I was always, like, in my class. I was very competitive with them. And to my surprise, you know, because down here, when we were kids, and it's still like that, like, the culture here is competitive in whatever way, like, even on the macho bullshit. Like, I never get mad dog so much than when I come to the valley, you know. Like, people just stare at you. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I just look away. I'm like, man, I don't want none of this shit. You know, I just want to enjoy my life. But it is that kind of a place down here, like, there's a little bit of like male aggression everywhere and, and, and there's a lot of fights and there's a lot of that shit. You know, every 
time there's been a club or like the owl, like some shit goes down, yeah. you know. And um, and so up there, like you know, I was trying to assert myself as one of the best in my classes, and like instead of kids getting mad at me, they would be like, "Oh, I want to hang out with you because I want to like see what you're up to," you know. And it was so different than the energy that I had down here. Like here, if you're like trying to show off and like be dope, like someone's gonna someone will try to just be better than you, and like so they can humiliate you or yeah. or just talk shit or they're just not gonna like you you know and it was a different because a lot of these you know they were rich kids but they grew up in an environment that wasn't creating like little little savages you know <laughs> and uh and i think that uh that that's what that was that was a big difference for me i was like, oh shit not everyone's out to just try to like fuck shit up against you you know and so you know it kind of calmed me down but at one point i remember going to class and then like leaving my class and then hanging out with another friend that, you know, he was in another room and we would just sit there and we'd work on a bunch of designs next to each other and just try to see, uh, you know, we'd give each other pointers and stuff. And he would show me a bunch of stuff. And I remember that was the day he was telling me who Banksy was. He was telling me a bunch of people that, you know, like all the big street artists were. And, I, you know, I was a really big fan of Shepard at the time. You weren't? So I was. So I was, I, was, uh, I was already a big fan of him. And, uh, but he was telling me like, check this guy out from England. You know, I was like Banksy and a bunch of people, you know, and as we're leaving class, like security comes up and talks to me and he's like, Hey, you know, I need to talk to you. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. And I start walking away and he grabbed me and he's like, you know, we're, you know, we're going to talk to you. So he says that I stole the iPod and, uh, and then they try to, they really try to say that I stole the iPod and they, they showed me the video and like, it's like a really crowded room. There's a iPod on the table. And I go around and I say bye to my friends. And when I move, iPod's gone. But it, it never showed me grabbing it, you know. Just a lot of people in there. Like, and, every, and it's time to go. Like, the bell didn't ring, but everyone was leaving because, you know, you're about to, you need to get to class. Yeah. And so I remember they were just so convinced that I did it. And they were so, like, gung-ho about getting me expelled for stealing. They're like, you know, a guy just stole a cell phone last week and, and he's done. And so they spent too much energy trying to kick me out for the next couple of weeks, like following me to my car. You know, at that point, I think I had a car already. I was in for like about a year um, following me to my classes, like pulling me out of classes and like showing, getting me to sign something that I admitted guilt. And I said, fuck you, I'm not signing it. And eventually, um, you know, they were really trying to push it. And I was getting really bitter. I was missing class. I was getting depressed. And then I started my own investigation. I was like, let me see the video. I went back to security, asked him to see the video. And I started looking because I was like, someone else fucking stole that shit and I'm paying for it. And so uh, I went and found this dude, the first guy that I saw that was next to me. And I asked him, like, have you seen that iPod? Did someone stole the iPod? And he's just like, oh, he's like, you know, I work at the Apple store. So that same night I took it and I put in the cereal and I got it to the girl the same day. And he's like, no shit. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'll give you her number. So I, I told her. And she went to go tell the dean, like, you know, I've had the iPod. Like, this kid shouldn't get in trouble. And then the, the dean was like, how much did you pay her to say that? Dang. And I was like, dude, all right, cool. And then she's like, no, dude, I'm dead serious. This is a white girl, so she believed her, you know. And uh, she's like, no, I'm dead serious. Like, he didn't take it. Like, I've had it since. Like, I'll... And she produced all the evidence. And then, um, and then they let me go. So I made them write me something that I was good. And I did, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to get a lawyer, and I'm going to sue them, because they were fucking with me for, like, a month. Yeah. And um, and I started really pushing that. 
And then I became, I started missing classes. Like then, then they started following me. Like the, the Dean started following me to my car, asking me to, no, don't do it. You're going to like, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. You know, they were trying and I would just be like, give me free tuition. And I would just be an asshole, you know, talk shit to her. I'm like, now you want to like, before you, when you were trying to crucify me, you were acting real hard and now you're acting real nice. And I would just be like, I'd flip her off and shit, you know, like, oh, it's a female. Yeah. Yeah. She's a female. Yeah. And then there was also some men involved, like the security. I would, I, when you go to school, you got to check in and show your ID. And he already knew who I was, so I just walked past, just walked past him, and you know, I was just pissed. I was really pissed over the situation, and I was really trying to sue. And then my mom hits me up. She's like, you know, you're, uh, why don't you transfer to another school? You're, like, you're getting all that amargado. You know, you're getting bitter. <laughs> uh, you know, you're not like the sweet kid anymore. I was like, nah, hell no. Like I'm trying to get my paper. You know, fuck these people. And, like, that was my goal, like, sue them, get some money, quit school, and just, like, I don't know what the fuck I was going to do with the money, but I was going to do something. Yeah. And uh, I was really trying to sue them. And then my mom's like, well, why don't you go look at the other schools? I was like, I don't really want to transfer, like, I, the battles here. Like, I, I wanted to just keep seeing them every day as I'm going to sue them because I was like, I'm going to break their spirits, you know, just stupid shit, you know. And um, I remember going to... My parents, uh, my mom saying, you should go check out the schools in L.A. And I was like, nah, I don't want to. But then I thought, oh, I get a free trip to L.A. Like, why not? You know, <laughs> and uh, they come and pick me up as my brother, my dad and my mom were all of us. And we they go to San Diego, pick me up, go to L.A. I go to the first school in like Koreatown and I hated it. It's like in the, like in the building and it's only like one floor on like the 11th floor of this building. And I didn't like it. It was it just felt so lame in there. I was like, nah. And then we go to the one in Santa Monica afterwards, and I go in for, like, 10 seconds. Not even, for, like, maybe two minutes, and I go in, and I'm like, oh, this shit's whack. And I leave, and I go to the car. My mom's mad. She's like, why did uh, we drove five hours, you know, I'm going to go pick you up and all that. We drove, like, been driving for five hours, so you could just go in there for 10 minutes. Mm. And she's like, you better go back in there and pretend you're looking at some shit, you know. <laughs> and I was like, cool. So I go back in there and I call my friend Richie and I'm on the phone with him for like 30 minutes. I'm just, I'm, I told myself I'm going to talk to him for 30 minutes. Once the time is up, I'll get back. And I went to go like, to the registrar office and I got some paperwork just to have it. And, um, and then I get it and I'm like, whatever, fuck this school. I don't want to go here. And as I'm walking to, to, uh, the elevator while I'm walking, I'm in the elevator and the doors are closing and right as they're closing, I see there's a bulletin board. It's like a cork board. And on the cork board, there's a flyer and it has Shepherd's work on it. And, I'm like, and I, you know, stop the elevator. The door's open. I go and grab that shit. And it's like the very next day, he's going to be speaking up the street. The very next okay. day. So I go to the car. I tell my mom, I was like, yo, like, I don't really like the school, but this shit's going down tomorrow. And I need to be there because I want to show him my shit, you know. And she's just like. Well, we can't be here. It was like $10 tickets, you know. She's like, we can't be here. We can't stay here. But why don't you, uh, I'll get you a ticket, two tickets, and you get one of your friends to drive up here with you tomorrow. And then I was like, all right, I'm game. And then I was like, you know, we started driving back to San Diego. I had my tickets. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to ask this dude for for, for an internship, you know. And uh, I'm going to ask Shepard for an internship. And uh, I'm going to bring some of the work that I've done and show it to him. And I had it all like on like big ass prints, you know, poster size and they were mounted. I look like a dork walking into that place. <laughs> but I remember thinking like, oh, shit, if I get an internship, that'll be done. My mom 
you know, they drop me off and she tells me, you know, if you, uh, he's like, I want you to promise me something. Like, what, what's going on? She's like, if they, if you get the internship with him, will you drop the lawsuit? And I was like, sure. I'm like, I'll do that. I'm, like, I'm probably not going to get it. So I'm still going to sue them, you know, whatever. And she's like, all right, you promise. I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. And so then I go, uh, the next day, show my shit and he gives me an internship on the spot, gives me a cell phone. And yeah, so I dropped the lawsuit. Dang. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how that got started. Yeah. Do you think, do you ever think, like, there's probably, like, a hundred other guys that try this shit, like, bring their their stuff with them and try to show them to, to ship, and he would probably just brush them off? You would think there'd be a hundred guys. No, there's not. Most people don't propose that kind of shit. I had the audacity, you know? Most people don't think of that shit. If he were to ask him, if people were to ask him, he'd probably say yeah to most of them. Oh, really? He didn't. Maybe not anymore, but back then he would have. Most people won't ask that kind of shit. People just want to autograph in the photo usually. You know? Yeah. Did you tell him the story about the lawsuit? Like how you dropped it because he... No. I don't think he even knows yet. I, I don't think he's listening to my interviews. No. No. That'll be that'll be crazy. Like, what? Let's get a lawyer and we'll probably well, say... I, I wanted to tell him... I, I, on my podcast, I wanted to tell him eventually that story with him hearing it. Uh-huh. How I was able to get to him. Yeah. That's crazy. So from there, you you internship with um, Shep for for how long? For like did, about a year, and then it became a job. Did you go back to school or? I was still going to school. Oh, okay. Did you yeah. did you graduate and everything? Or? Yeah, yeah. I was nineteen when I started working for him. I was a kid. Um, yeah. I mean, I started school at seventeen, almost eighteen, and I went to school for about a year, and then maybe a year, not even maybe like a year, like three months. After I started school, I was already working with him. Oh, that's I was crazy. In, yeah. And that internship turned into a job. Yeah. It's crazy that, you know, at 19, you were working with this guy. And and now, um, yeah, because I was, I was watching some of the videos when you're with him. And it's like, man, you look so freaking young. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's so, because, yeah, it's been like, what, like 14 years. You're, you're 33, you said? You said? Mm-hmm. It's been 14 years now. Yeah, I started with him in 2006. Yeah, that's crazy. So, um, do you feel that, um, cause Shep is kind of somebody that, you know, is kind of like an activist in a sense of, you yeah. know, when he does his artwork, do you think that he, he also had like an influence on, on you and you being, you know, focused on, you know, doing activism work through your art? Definitely. Yeah. Um, let me just, it was him and Zach, him and Zach got me into activism for sure. Uh, the music I was listening to since I was young, um, definitely seeing him do the Obama image. I was around for that and seeing how like an image could kind of change the whole. I don't know. I, I still feel that without that Obama image, Obama probably wouldn't have been president. You know, I might be wrong, but I really do feel that. Excuse me. And I feel like. I feel like he, uh, it was a good example. I was like, oh shit, like a poster could do that kind of shit. Like, okay, I like that. And I like that there was no bureaucracy when it came to that. Like, that dude just did it and put it out, and then boom, you know, like eventually the campaign got a hold of him, but it was, he did it. He just did it. Yeah. I think from there, um, I think, um, Eddie Huang also picked up the kind of like the, I don't know if it was the same image, but Eddie Huang also did. T-shirts and shit for for the Obama campaign. I don't know if you. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I remember because um, I was reading his book and um, he was talking about how he, you know, started doing that for and donating most of the money to, to the Obama campaign as well. 
Yeah, a lot, a lot of artists did. Mm-hmm. Shep was the first one. Oh, okay. Um, why do you think it's, or do you think is important for you know artists to use their art like for when there's a kind of like a cause like activism or any other cause that might be you know affecting you know people or the community or yeah i know i definitely think that uh, art's a great tool to connect to folks to advocate on behalf of uh on behalf of yourself or on behalf of the marginalized communities you know um i don't really always agree on people speaking for any on behalf of anyone but for the most part you know it is a good tool for that but I like being in solidarity with communities, right? If I'm not directly part of that community, I'll create something in solidarity. Like, you know, I, I see you and I got your back to the extent that I can. And then two, it's like sometimes I get people are running their own movements. They're they're working on their own struggle. They're working on their on everything. And then they just hire me or they ask me to create an image just like pro bono for free, you know, so. There's all kinds of different situations. Yeah, because like I know that uh, the LA Teachers Union kind of reached out to you, right? Or, or did you reach out to them? How did that? Um, well, one of the main organizers is really good friends with, uh, with Zach. Okay. So Zach hit me up. He's like, he, he's like, uh, you should uh, link up with them and help him out. And I was like, all right, got you. You know. Um, for for those people who don't know who Zach is, we keep naming Zach. He's yeah. Zach de la Rocha. He's the lead singer of. Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. It was a big band back in late 90s. Late really 90s, t- early 2000s. Uh, I mean, he's probably one of the most influential Chicanos of all time. It's like, I always think of like him, you know, Edward James Olmos, Danny Trejo. Obviously, like he's up there with all those guys, you know. In terms, of, and, in terms of celebrities. Celebrity. You know? But he's the dude that was like political as fuck, you know. like mm. He was creating music that was like kind of a soundtrack to... You know, Brown Rebellion in a way, right? And um, he, without him, like, people like me wouldn't exist, you know? He was kind of, uh, he was definitely, like, the, uh, like, what made, like, revolutionary, you know, rock music. He's the one that kind of got a lot of kids to look in into their yeah. lineage, into their history. Uh, he was really involved with the Zapatistas in the uh, in the early '90s, mid '90s, and um, but yeah, he's also one of my good friends. He's a mentor of mine. We worked on a couple images together. He was working against uh, Arpaio in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Brought me along for that. Um, that's how I met a lot of the folks in Arizona, and that got me into a lot of other things. You know, th- th- those trips got me into like me connecting more with my indigenous roots. Um, got me more into, you know, becoming more critical. But yeah, no, he's, if you don't know the Rage Against the Machine, you should definitely check out the music. Yeah, it's funny because, um, it's funny because the way I found Rage Against the Machine was through, uh, my pocho friend. He, you know, he hardly speaks any, any Spanish and, but he, he had the CD. I'm like, hey, what's this? I had never heard of him. And I popped it in and I was like, man, this, I don't, I didn't even know it was like, a you know uh, and but i mean i could tell like there was some anger be- behind the music and, and and a cause and stuff like that so it was like now that i i, I kind of when i saw you and him working i was like man it makes sense you know the 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 activism and like the 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 passion for for his music and 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 and, and you know the helping helping like yeah community folks mm-hmm. yeah 
No, it's it's he's a big influence. I mean, him and Chuck D from Public Enemy, Tigres um, del too. They were always political. Uh, Manu Chao. There's a lot of really amazing political musicians out there. Did you did you ever think that? Oh, I'm gonna meet uh, Sack and maybe become his friend in the future. No, <laughs> I thought I'd probably meet him, but I didn't know I was gonna become close to him. Mm. I mean, I've got him. I work with like Daddy Trejo a lot, but I haven't gotten close close to him like we, we he would know who i am if he walked in here but like zach's like my friend you know like it's a difference um but i never thought i'd even be in the same room as like danny Trejo. and he's been in my studio like i've been to his house like it's such a trip but um i mean they're all kind of regular dudes you know yeah it's crazy huh yeah i think yeah um some something that um i was listening watching one of your um interviews i think it was the one with the bbc oh wow and I, I, something that hit me was um that something you said in that interview was that um people often um misinterpret humility as a weakness oh yeah yeah what? especially like for working people right mm. like raza from mexico they'll come here they're really humble kind of keep their head down and like people know that they could take advantage of them now they see it as a weakness like they see the timidness as like something that that they can kind of like just they could overpower and get them to do whatever they want and there's like a policy that i always kind of like lately in the last couple of years of just working in la working in like you know corporate clients and all kinds of different folks that i'm all, i'm always i'm always going to be humble to to most people too to humble folks, but if someone comes up to me and wants to cut a deal with me or wants to rip me off, like, you know, I'm, I won't be humble to them. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, uh, more, uh, what's it called? A, a little bit more cutthroat with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and sometimes I just won't work with them at all, but depends. Like sometimes I'm broke and I need to get, I need work because otherwise I won't keep the lights on or I won't keep the studio. And I'm like, cool, whatever. Like, I don't like to survive, but I need to. I need I need to just survive. I need to pay this month of rent. And I'll give myself permission to be like, you know, you don't have to be humble with this guy. They're not being humble to you. Fuck it. Let's see how much we can squeeze out of them. Usually, I don't think that way. Usually, I don't think that way. But sometimes there's, there's room. Like, this society is like, you know, capitalism is inherently violent. Like, it's, it's about just, it's more than just survival. It's about greed and like, you know. Yeah you know uh hoarding and you know hoarding uh resources it's kind of fucked up really mm-hmm. and we all kind of participate in our own ways i certainly do um and there's contradictions in that but i try to be you know as honest with myself as i am you know there's a lot of folks that there's a lot of culture out in la where they're like you know we're practicing uh you know ethical capitalism like that shit don't exist you know like get out of here um i'm just trying to do it in a way that I'm like not be I'm trying to be the least violent to anyone with it you know because people don't realize that you could be the capital like money and and wealth is fucking violent to other people you know um just the concept alone is ridiculous like you're gonna own land you're gonna own you know you're gonna set up borders and you know who gets to say who's who gets to cross and you know whoever's got the guns gets to say that you know it's all fucked up like I don't really I don't believe in any of this shit, but we have to, I have to adhere to it because I don't want to like, you know, what, what am I, if I don't adhere to it, it's like, I don't have the means of like, 
of really uh, challenging them. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I could, but I'm probably gonna end up dead or in prison. You know, I'm not gonna do it. Um, but I also don't believe it. I'm like, this shit's ridiculous. Like, I can't believe we're all uh, subscribing to this shit. You know, mm-hmm. like the idea that there's borders, that there's private property, that there's all these different things. I, I feel like it's a uh, so counterintuitive to you know indigenous ways, traditional ways that. You know, now we're killing the earth and eventually, not that we're killing the earth, but we're like, we're giving the the, the earth the flu and then a really well, bad one. once the earth starts coughing, we're all going to die. And it's like, and it's going to be the, the most vulnerable people that are going to feel it first. You know, it's always the poor communities that feel the, the, the effects of climate change first. Uh, rich people are going to figure out a way to like hide out and do whatever they need to do. Yeah. And they're the ones that are causing this shit. You know? Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, uh. It's a strange thing, but for for me, it's it's always about you know staying aware. Yeah, yeah like I I've been finding it hard to like, um, kind of like be neutral. Yeah. When it comes to like um, tra- trying to to listen to everybody, and um, um, when I don't agree with somebody's opinions or or ideas. Yeah. It's hard to be neutral with like someone wearing a MAGA hat or something, you know. Mm. I don't know. Do you see a lot of people like that down here? Uh, a couple, huh? Probably on Facebook, but not out they of don't, the open. They don't be wearing MAGA hats out here. In the no, open. not really. On Facebook, they do, but not on... Because someone will start talking shit to them out here, huh? Mm. Probably, most likely. Uh-huh. I feel like so. I don't know if it'll be go down to the fighting, I but... Th- I think it'll surprise you how much, how many... Um, mm, Trump supporters? Uh-huh. Oh, no, I'm not surprised at all. There's probably a lot down here. Mm. No, I always think there's a lot. Yeah, and I mean, some like I said, it's it's hard to not um, ad- identify these these people as Trump supporters, but it's it's hard like to to I don't know like to understand like sometimes I ask myself um, when they hear me talk about you know things going on that you know there's facts, do they think? Um, crazy like sometimes I feel that, that they're crazy yeah like I don't know it, it, it's it's hard to to rationalize the I don't know the, the, the points of view and, and, and yeah. especially down here right that you know yeah um, they talk they talk about you know tax cuts and stuff like that but nobody here nobody here has felt you know the the benefits of those tax cuts. Hell no, you got to be like rich as fuck. Yeah. Well, actually, there has been the people that own the fields. Yeah, so. I mean, besides them, which is you know a handful of people in the valley, I mean, the majority of I want to say ninety five percent of the people here have never they don't really feel the benefit of of those tax cuts. No, nah, but the, um, the Republican Party's got to. I mean, both of these parties really. I'm not Democrat myself, but the Republican Party's always had a done a great job of getting like working class people to vote against their own interests you know and then um they make it feel like you know if you if you play by the rules one day you're gonna be rich you know and it's like no you're not you're never gonna be rich <laughs> <laughs> no it's really hard to be part of that one percent yeah or even just like not even that's like wealth you know but like just even just like a little bit rich like that shit's hard enough and you know you got dudes out here working like crazy insane shifts at like you know whatever at the prison or at, at the border patrol like crazy amounts of overtime to like to other nice house or something you know but it's also like that's just gonna take a toll on your body oh yeah right? for yeah. sure and, yeah sooner or later yeah. you know it's gonna 
I mean, being out on if you're border patrol, being out in the sun and whatnot. If you're a, a, in a customs like inhaling all that smoke by the, from the cars, if you're a prison guard, I, I know because of my brother-in-law. Yeah. You know, at ten years, fifteen years down the line, you're gonna feel like a prisoner yourself, and you're gonna throw the towel because it's it's not a it's not I don't know it's not a, a healthy job or a healthy thing to do. No. Yeah, just babysitting, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mm-hmm. mean. Um, I mean, it's fucked up because you got people in captivity. I mean, I, I, I'm like, I'm definitely an abolitionist where like, you know, my dad's been working in the prison for a long time and what he does is pretty dope. It's so different, you know, he's working with, but it's still, you know, you're still working part of the system and, and I'm sure he would agree with certain things of like, we wish we had a more rehabilitative, you know, instead of people going to prisons, why aren't there, you know, huge, uh, like mental health facilities people go to that are instead of getting locked up in prison, you're going to somewhere where you're actively going to, you know, you're going to see a therapist every day when you first get in, you know, all yeah. these different things, but obviously it costs a lot more money, but we seem to have a lot of money for the military and we seem to have a lot of money to bomb other brown people around the world. You know, <laughs> we could, we could afford to do something better with our prison system for sure. You know? Yeah. And, and, and not only that, but, um, you know, the uh, um, mental health is a you know big thing that we, kind of hardly speak about or, or hardly hear in the news that, you know, um, I don't know. It's just it's just something that... Yeah, the only time we hear it is when, like, some white dude shoots up a fucking mall, you know. All of a sudden, it's mental health. Yeah. But if we do some shit, it's like, oh, it's because they're criminals. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, something that uh, my coworker um, said I should ask you is, do you think races can communicate, understand each other through the arts? Yeah, of course. No, I do. I do believe that. I mean, I think it, it's it's also like. Um, I think as long as, um, like James Baldwin said, like America is always going to be a victim to its own history, you know, because it doesn't know. Like people here don't know the history. They don't know, and and if you bring it up, people get defensive. You yeah, know, they'll be like, um, you know, it was indigenous land, and all the wealth, most of the wealth, got, you know made you know the wealth was uh developed through the use of slavery right um and since then those people that got rich during slavery they just kind of been passing the wealth along Mm -hmm. like a baton to their kids to their you know to all their descendants and and that money is old you know that's old money and most jobs, most professions, they come in through like nepotism. So if the, most of the people that have the power and the money are like white, who are they going to hook up? Like other people from their own community. It's a very segregated nation, you know? Mm-hmm. So like people are going to hook up their neighbors or cousins, whatever. And it's usually like within their own group. Same thing we would do, you know, because we live in this society. So it's like, but if the power is like really offset, you know, if like it's this disproportionate amount of like how much power white folks have in this country. Um, they're going to keep on pushing it that way. You know, they're going to keep it in their community. But if they were to understand, and maybe the arts could do that, you know, maybe the arts could do that. They could understand the history of this country and that, you know, we're all, we're stuck in this shit together and we got to figure out how to, how to all um, survive it together and, and, and take care of one another. That'd be dope. But that's not how people see it. Everything is like us versus them here. You know, everything's like, you know, we have our community and those people over there are coming in and they're breaking in our cars. You know, it's always that kind of shit. Yeah. And so uh, as long as that keeps happening, 
it's going to be hard to get unified, you know. How hard is it for you to um, kind of like, um, or how hard has it been like to get all these negative comments on like, oh, um, I, I, th- I think I saw one time on, I think it was one of your Instagram posts that, you know, somebody you knew um, made a comment about, um, I can't remember what it was, like saying like, oh, you're defending or your your community this like something negative about you know things you speak or the things you 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 create you know being them being um you know just uh, backing you know Hispanics or or minorities or do you remember what it was I can't remember what it I can't remember what it was I think I wrote it somewhere but it was like somebody someone like you kind of like like an acquaintance that um you had just seen and then he said something he sent you a, like a private message or something about some piece of art you had made or something oh no no i didn't know that guy yeah they, he commented on some shit like you know like quit why 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 don't you stop being political and just make art that shit that one, yeah, yeah yeah i was like nah it was like some white dude i don't know him at all oh okay yeah. but how, how hard is it for you to like kind of like ignore that and and it doesn't happen too much but I know that sentiment is out there. Mm. There's a lot of people that like the aesthetics of my work, but they don't like my politics, you know. Um, and that was the whole thing of like, you know, it's always it, America's got that whole history of like, you know, you subjugate black folks, you enslave them, you fuck with them. But then for 100 years later, you just exploit their their swag, their style, their, the way that they dance, or their, their fashion, all the art they create, like everything most most art and culture in the u.s has been stolen from like black folks you know rock and roll Music, and yeah. everything you know just comedy like everything that i'm into for the most part like it has like some black roots even country music was started by black people you know like and like everything just gets taken you know you got fucking elvis pretty much you know he's the king of whatever king of rock but yeah. then the dude jacked this whole shit from black folks you mm-hmm. know and and, and and that comes to the whole thing of like I don't want you to say anything political. I just want you to entertain me. Yeah, kind of yeah. like the the um, what, what was um, I think this this lady from Fox said told LeBron to uh, pass the ball and shut up or yeah. dribble the ball. Or yeah, shut I remember up. that. So you know, yeah, we're okay when it comes to kind of that, and but we can't talk about you know you know the past and how much we they were oppressed and all this stuff that. Yeah, but as soon as like, you know, but there are, everything's about the founding fathers and the Constitution and all this bullshit. It's like whatever those fools used to own slaves. You know? Yeah, I think that something that since I was a kid kind of like stuck in my head, and and now it's kind of like, like I felt like I was lied to was you know oh yeah we're this melting pot, but but now that you know there's this this big movement for you know us against them. Um, I kind of felt like what you know all my life I've been you know in, in my head it's been like you know we're part of this this nation now it's it kind of feels like we're slowly like no, there's, there's always been separations but it was like campaign uh, sorry Trump's campaign was really about that creating like feeding into those fears right feeding into the fear of like you know working class white people they're, they're afraid that their country's being taken over, you know, and it's like, this shit was never yours to begin with, you know, this has always been Indian land, and, you know, I guess, 
came here and tried to give it a go after the genocide and after slavery and you know it's uh and really you know the real reason why people from mexico are coming or or central america is coming is because the u.s has their hands all over those countries exploiting all their resources you know taking everything Mm -hmm. and so if there's no food or money or oil or whatever left in mexico or you know, if the if the rich people there are keeping it all and selling a lot of it to the U.S., if the rich people in other countries are keeping it all to themselves and whatever's left, sending it, selling it to the U.S., what's left for the working class people? There's nothing. Yeah. So there's they start crime starts rising. You know, people trying to survive, they get into gangs, they get into different shit, and they end up coming over here because there's not like this is where the resources were. Mm. So. I mean, we got to be real about what the U.S. is. We're like a big bully. We steal shit from everywhere else. And then when people come over here to try to meet up and reunite themselves with the with the resources that came from them, all of a sudden people are like, you know, why are these criminals showing up? It's like, dude, we're fucking criminals. Like we're jacking their shit and they're just trying to steal it back. You know, yeah. that's it. I don't even think they're trying to steal it back. They're just trying to like have access to it because you want to survive, right? And um, that's something that I feel like People don't understand that. Like, the U.S. isn't this, like, friendly cop going around the world and making sure that we're keeping the peace. Like, no, dude. Like, every time we're somewhere, we're there to take some shit, you know. If we're in the Middle East, it's because they have oil. If we're in wherever, it's because, you know, they have this or that. Or or it's a really good geopolitical, like, you know, it's a really good positioning for us to have a base at or something, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, benefits. Yeah, that shit's... The U.S. isn't your friendly neighbor, you know. It's just like the fucking, the predatory fucking wild ass country that wants to just keep the, keep its power, you know. And and uh, that's why there's like such tensions with China because China's not trying to do that shit too. You mm. know? And they have, uh, they seem to, to to have a good go at it. And who knows, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're doing a, I guess a good job at it. That's why you know, U.S. is pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that the you know, art can keep the Chicano movement al- alive. Because I remember, like, for a while, I guess the art we got from that kind of like put Chicano in my mind, Chicano movement in my mind was like the Blood and Blood Out movies or the, um, you know, you know those movies from from you know what was that the American Me? Yeah, all the cha- the gang movies. Uh huh. You know, it kind of like sometimes it kind of made you like research. You know your roots and stuff like that. Do you think now art, you know, your your kind of art, you know, other artists can keep the Chicano movement alive? So for me, it's always like you know the evolution of what Chicano means. You know, I don't know. I definitely, you know, there's part of me that still identifies as Chicano. There's part of me that feels like I'm something a little different because I really identify with like I don't really see Chicanismo comes out of like a really deep nationalistic connection to Mexico, right? And for me. I want to look beyond that. Like, all these indigenous nations came, you know, before Mexico was around, it was, like, all these different native nations. Those native people down in Mexico are connected to native people over here. Native people in Mexico are connected to native people in Central and South America. So when you use Chicano, it completely, immediately disconnects you from all those people. Disconnects you from the people, from native people over here and the native people down south. And so, for me, I've been, I, I, I want to... I don't know what I uh, what I call myself yet, but I'm searching for something that connects me to all those people down there, like my connects my indigeneity that way, um, and even like, you know, definitely got Spanish lineage as well, and but a lot of those folks they're they're mixed too, and they have Spanish, they have African, you know, Middle Eastern and Asian, 
the way that a lot of us are. Um, but, you know, the arts certainly, you know, there's a way of expressing that. You know, my work is about getting people to look into their indigenous roots, looking people to look into, you know, any kind of roots. You know, I'm also Sephardic, you know, uh, yeah, Spanish, Jewish person from, uh, you know, my great grandfather, his dad was from Andalusia, from southern Spain. Um, and people don't know about, like, you know, Mexican Jews, but then it's everywhere. You know, the pan dulce, the uh, capriotada, um, albondigas, you know, these are all, these are all like, you know, Mexican Sephardic, you know, Jewish. Uh, what do the um, Jewish people call albondigas? Or s- oh, matzubah. Matzubah. That's like Ashkenazi Jews. So those are like, you know, Eastern European Jews. Uh, what we call them, white Jews. And there's brown Jews from like North Africa that eventually ended up in Spain. And then they moved from Spain to Mexico. Um, and so a lot of that culture is there. You know, pan dulce is Jewish as fuck, you know. Super Jewish is pan dulce, you know, and everyone eats it. Most of the time, people eat it with with a coffee for breakfast. Too, yeah. you know? But that's like a Sephardic thing, and uh, I rarely eat it. Yeah, but it's part of it's part of the culture of, of my people, you know. Um, and to me, it's it's I like knowing so much about my history because it's like, you know, I like knowing where I'm from so I can kind of better yet know where I'm going, and also really understand the patterns of of control you know yeah yeah because i mean to me it's i think till probably like this last year i've been like kind of like really like wanting to explore that you know what you know why are some people like so passionate about you know calling themselves chicanos and 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 learning about you know you know the indigenous or indigenous past and all this and 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 yeah you look at it and it's like man you know we were so resourceful yeah. you know we were you know smart people like strong people and now like you know yeah they've, they've like kind of like put us down on you know i don't yeah. know i think we're we're being oppressed like bec- like i don't know it, it's it's and it's and I, yeah. I think it's harder when you you like i don't think you go to mexico and i don't think like a lot of people really um um how do you like they don't really talk about it or they don't no, really it's a different structure over there uh-huh. so i got a theory about it too i mean you know to me here it was all, anytime that anything's denied to me any part of who i am is denied to me it's a problem right um so i always felt like my indigeneity was denied to me um especially in this country you know and even then my own history just like you go to school you never see yourself in history books mm. just once like you know and it's a little tiny photo of cesar chavez yeah but for the most part, you never see yourself. It's like you never see yourself in TV. More and more so now, yes. But back then, not as much. And then it starts doing something to yourself. Like, you know, as a little kid, you're like, anything that deserves to be in books, it's in books because it's important. Anything that deserves that's on the TV, it deserves to be on TV because it's important. And, like, you know, it deserves to be on there. And so when you don't see yourself on TV, you don't see yourself in history books, you don't see yourself on, on anything everything's like you know glorifying europeans everything's about like you know forefathers and you know the greeks and the romans and you know maybe a little bit on the egyptians but nothing really mostly not people of color usually and so what does that do to you you know you're like oh you, that's white supremacy right yeah we don't we're not worthy of being in your fucking books you know and and so there's maybe maybe it's because i'm not important you know and so the, and then that 
you start internalizing that like oh shit there's something wrong with me uh, i'm not as smart i'm not as deserving um i'm not as valuable and it either pushes kids to really feel down and get depressed or it pushes kids to want to become white you know um it's a lot of that shit down here you know a little a lot of little coconuts uh, <laughs> and then uh or it pushes kids like me where I was like, you know what, fuck all this shit. I'm going to be who I am. Yeah. And I was always like that. I mean, even even if I was into just weird shit, like shit that was like considered, you know, maybe not super Mexican. I was really about it. You know, whatever I want to do. I was in like off-roading and shit, you know. But there's also, you know, that to me happens in the U.S. Because in the U.S., the ruling class is white and set when we were growing up it was like 70 now the numbers have changed since we were growing up yeah it was like 70 percent 70 to 75 percent of this country or the population was white so if you're a government and you're trying to you know together with the ruling class the one percent we're talking about the one percent the people that own all the money together with the government they try to keep control of the whole country all you do is have to, you have to appease, you have to make the biggest group possible. Like the biggest group, which is like 75% white, you got to make them feel uh, comfortable enough. Mm-hmm. But comfortable enough where, where, but where they're not rich because you don't want to give up your wealth, right? You don't want to give up the 1% wealth. So you just keep them in a decent place where they, where they feel like they have more privileges over other people, right? And then they also feel like they have, uh, they can aspire to be part of that 1%. Yeah. They can be aspire to be rich. So that's what happens, right? You create white privilege. You let them have certain privileges over other folks, and they stay that way. In Mexico, it's the same kind of way, but the majority isn't white. The majority is mestizo, people that look like me, people that look like you, people that are mixed. So then they disassociate themselves with from their own indigenous because they look at the people that are like poor. They look at the people that are really, really marginalized, and those are like the people that are like indigenous communities people that still some of them don't speak spanish they speak the traditional languages they dress the traditional way they live in like you know really disconnected areas mm-hmm. from the rest of the country and they look down on them they call them the indios they call them all kinds of other shit yeah um and so the, those mestizos they're like the white folks here you know in, in a lot of ways they have access to education they have access to you know maybe clean water bathrooms they live in the city and a lot of times they want to disassociate themselves from those who they see as less like desirable, right? Yeah. So they they don't want to they don't want to uh, see themselves as that. So they they're like, oh yeah, we're, we're gonna we want to be more like European esque. We want to be more of this or that, you know. And and in turn, they deny their own indigeneity. They don't want to be that. They don't want to be looked down upon. And so what happens here? It's different because here the ruling class isn't mestizo like this shit ain't gonna cut it you know mexico it'll cut it here it ain't gonna cut it so it pushes us to be like oh shit i gotta look at my indigenous roots you know um because you got nowhere to you're not gonna get any privileges looking mestizo here yeah. as you would in mexico you know? and that's a very like you know someone someone that's way more educated and that's way more uh of an intellectual they can break my theory in half real fast but there's a little bit of it that i really believe in that like i know that there's there's a certain kind of pressure that brown people have here as opposed to in Mexico because mm-hmm. everyone everyone's brown or most people are brown there's 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 what he does in Mexico yeah, too yeah my, my wife's yeah. like super white she yeah, yeah. Look. but there's also there's colorism in Mexico when you're a little kid and there's like if there's like a little brown daughter and like a really like more 
you know, darker brown daughter and a really light-skinned daughter who always gets treated better, you know? Who's always, oh, preciosa, bonita, this and that. Yeah. You're always, like, shitting on a little brown girl, you know? <laughs> it, that's every fucking Mexican family, yeah. for the most part. I mean, that's such a repetitive example. Like, I've seen that so much. Like, that's such an experience, like, very Mexican experience. And, um, you know, and eventually when people become woke, they're, like, flexing, like, I'm fucking, like, Indian and shit. What's up, you know? <laughs> this is the fucking way, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's different. Um you still got to deal with the traumas of being seen as like less important, you know, less, uh, you know, less beautiful. Um, like the beauty standards of this country are white people's yeah. beauty standards. And there's a lot of that going on. So it's a different vibe, you know, obviously Mexico is also going to have, they have their own white supremacist ideals. Um, people are mestizo, but they, it's like people get to deny parts of who they are. And then people get to, want to activate a part to who they are and it's a choice right for me it's like i'm sephardic and i'm basque and you know i'm yaki and you know i'm gonna try to learn as much as i can about all of them and i'm gonna try to like not suppress any of that shit you know like if any part of my lineage needs any healing to do i'm gonna try to seek that out if any part of my lineage has any you know any knowledge that i can use and that i can learn you know that i could it could help me and my life out and then I'm going to go for it too but there's a lot of people that are like Mexicans are very selective of what they choose you know they keep the they know that they're native you know they keep that shit quiet because they're ashamed of it you know yeah most Mexicans have African lineage it's the same shit you know um but if someone were to be like oh you're Italian they'll fucking be bragging about it I'm Italian you know I'm Spanish or I'm this or that it's it's a fucking problem like that's our own white supremacy just like you know, getting the better of us, you know. Um, you know, the, the, right now that we we have all this, you know, things going on be, on the border with, you know, kids getting, being separated from their parents and, you know, being um, kept in, in cages for all this um, time. Do you have any plans of coming back and, you know, you know, there's, there's no better place. Well, this is a, I, just I want to I want to say that this is a question from my friend Gil. Um, there's no other place um, to you know to advocate you know for the border and 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 and, and the immigrants <laughs> than than the actual border. Do you have any plans on? Yeah, I mean I'm always around here. I work with other organizations. I just did some stuff with uh, Border Kindness. Um, but yeah, no, I don't I don't know if I have any any plans, but I'm definitely not opposed to it. Um, I feel like there's anywhere in this country, anywhere in the world, there's a good place to advocate against colonial borders, you know. Um, I feel like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've never been an organizer ever, you know. I'm not an organizer. I'm an artist. I help out. With or- I help organizers. I work with the organizers, but I've never been, you know, someone that's on, like, the ground building shit. Like, I'm not, that's never been my role. My role is, like, people build it. They're working on stuff and I sit down with them and I interview them for lack of a better term. And then we come up with messaging and then figure out ways of amplifying whatever work they're doing or whatever goals or whatever demands they have. Uh, make that shit loud. So that's kind of my role in it. But, yeah, I could do that from anywhere, really. Yeah. Um, some of the people that, you know, I kind of like 
I, I see that you work with were like Danny Trejo, Chuck D, the Roddy Roddy Piper, um, Felipe Esparza, Mario Lopez, Cotto, you know, all these, all these people, like, can you, can you think of somebody that, you know, kind of like, you know, um, influence you the most other than, other than Rocha that you already know that. There's this dude named uh, Richard Duardo. Um, he's a pretty well-known printmaker. Well, he passed away, but he uh, showed me how to do a lot of uh, printmaking, screen printing. Um, he was also just like such a good mentor. You know, he was he was kind of an eccentric dude, but he uh, he always got me to think big. You know, to think like I was already sort of a hustler. I was always working hard, but he's the one that kind of showed me how to. How to connect with people, how to be myself, you know, how to just be unapologetically me. Um, and he was like a huge influence on me. So I would say Richard Duardo. Check out his work. Look him up. Um, he started a, he had a, a print studio and it's still around. It's called uh, Modern Multiples. And they printed everyone. Sh- Shepherds, Banksy's, everyone. Um, I was going to ask something else. Um... Any advice that you could give, you know, local artists um, that are kind of like, kind of like trying to come up? Because there's, I mean, I've been, since I started a podcast, I've been, you know, going through Instagram, going through Facebook and looking at all these people that are, you know, doing some cool shit in the Valley that yeah. are like kind of low key that, you know, I know um, Jared Storm is doing some cool shit yeah, down here. Friend, yeah. Um, uh, Fernando Fernando's doing some cool shit down here badass man I love that um, Young Manners is doing some cool yeah, shit yeah Petonas too Young Manners is dope um, there's a lot of cool people down here that court is that are you know trying to come up and it, I think it's hard here in the valley for people to um, are trying to you know be, do something with art just because you know as it is we're uh, uh, kind of like a low income valley you know like yeah. we, we struggle to you know check by check and yeah. it's kind of hard like for us to say like you know I'm going to spend some money on some art yeah um, so what do you what can you tell like people that are trying to like come up from from the valley like artists look artists that are trying to come up from the valley so for me it's really been helpful to understand my audience like who are the people that want to support me because I used to, I, I came out of like Shep's camp and I was like you know making big ass canvases when I started and there were a couple thousand each and I would sell them you know I would sell them but it was mostly like, you know, going to wealthier folks. It wasn't going to my community. The people that really wanted to support me couldn't afford my work. So I was like, there's a disconnect there. So first understanding who are the people that really love your shit? Who wants to collect it? And what could they afford? And then you do something in that range. You know? And it doesn't have to be a lot. You know, I have prints that are 35 bucks. And to some people, to some people, and, and, and I don't mean this in a, I mean this in a very sincere way. I sound, when I said some people, it sounded like I was being a dick, but I'm not, no. <laughs> Like to some folks, thirty five bucks is too much. I'm not gonna spend that on a print, you know. But they'll they'll spend ten bucks, you know, five to ten bucks on a poster, on a, sorry, on a on a postcard or on some stickers, on an enamel pin, you know, on something smaller, on a magnet for their fridge, you know. They they'll find ways of supporting you. So that's what I do. I mean, I have so many different like you know price tiers. You know, I have thirty five dollar prints. $50 prints, $10 posters. I signed those with Sharpie, um, magnets for like five bucks. You know, a lot of this stuff I don't have online though. I do it in person. 
and you can either when there's little art fairs here you can do you can create work that's like you know really affordable you know young manners or you know could take some of his work and scan it make it smaller sell it as fridge as fridge magnets you know there's a lot of places you can get this stuff made um and sell it for five bucks ten bucks and you know you get 20 people to buy five dollar you know that's already a hundred bucks you know you could either that's something you could pay towards rent or you can make more stuff you know Mm -hmm. and and so there's that's a way and another way that i really feel is that you should make your stuff like you know create a brand that you can share online and then make make sure you know how to ship stuff make things make pieces that are easier to to ship uh small pieces you can put them in like you know those those express uh envelopes at the at their uh at the post office and like there's different ways and people will buy they will support it online you know people from other parts of the border you know maybe from el paso from san diego you know people are collecting and so figuring out a way to connect with those folks make things uh accessible price range it's a good way to get going because people do want to collect art you know Mm -hmm. um a lot of a lot of folks have a lot of art in their homes yeah and it's uh it's important to a lot of us so but just make sure that you know you know your audience and that uh, you make it accessible. Yeah, I think that a lot of people want to support just that the you know finding that 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 right price to be able to you know say like yeah I spent um 15 bucks on a on a postcard or yeah. or a couple of stickers. I mean just finding that right price to like yeah. um kind of like um what's that word I'm trying to like say like yeah you know yeah I, I can manage those fifteen bucks yeah and- it's accessible mm. yeah so I would definitely say that make accessible price work and then do do an online store you know I use a big cartel you can use Shopify Etsy there's many ways um, don't limit yourself just for in person events you know and then also just like talk to the local stores you know go to you know, Tiendi can talk to Liz, you know, hey, Liz, like, do you want to carry my stuff? You know, she's into it, she will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I feel that El Centro has that really um, tight community of, you know, artists that support each other, you know, whether it's Tiendi, whether it's Discordia, whether yeah. it's Strangers, you know, they're Jared, all, yeah. yeah, they're all trying to, like, that's what I, when I was talking to Jared, I was like, man, I really um, admire the, you know, it's commendable, like, the things that you guys do for, for each other, not, you know, because sometimes the city, you know, doesn't really support them, but, you know, f- yeah. you know, themselves are, are trying to, like, you know, do something and, and, and come up, you know, make make the downtown, like, here in El Centro, like, be part of the city because it seems like it's being neglected and it's and it's going to pieces. Like, it's, it's you go down there and it's kind of scary sometimes. Like, yeah. And Grand. these guys are, you know, are there, like, day and night and, and trying to, like, bring people in bring crowds in and and you know make it a thing and and yeah it's commendable that you know they 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 do all these these things for each other and they're trying to at the same time like incorporate the community and and make it a you know community vibe and and i think that that's the biggest thing here that we could tap into like make things feel like it's a community like being part of the community especially down here that it's kind of smaller yeah no that's for sure because because when you go like to la i feel that you know yeah that's that's what um like you go to areas where it's just mexicans well yeah they go there because it's they feel like a part of the community and here like we're all kind of like basically the same 
race or whatnot and you know if you make us feel like community like we'll come and join you guys so yeah no it's a it's a good spot i mean i really like what what ernie's and the, the crew's done down here and uh on main street and yeah it was i remember when i was growing up it, there was none of that shit around mm. yeah yeah no, i mean i i live in calexico and i grew up in calexico and there's probably angel um esparza is the only one that's kind of like trying to do something but other than that you know it's it's yeah. it's it's dead yeah um well we've been doing this for almost an hour and a half now oh shit <laughs> so we went way over yeah so is there anything that you else that you would like to add or or talk about that i, I didn't touch or ask you yeah i mean i think that's it i, I there's there's things about the valley i don't want to know more about you know i'm always looking at ebay and seeing like old history shit like you know i have i collect like little matchbooks from down here from like the 30s and oh, really? 40s yeah and like i like learning more about the valley um i also I, yeah if there's anyone listening that's like that has a uh, kumie uh lineage this is a native people from here mm. yeah i yeah reach out I, i'm i'm interested in i've always wanted to run into someone that's an elder that that that's like knows more of the traditional um the traditional ways of the valley, you know, this was, this was all Kume land, you know. Okay. Um, I have a coworker that's, you know, like native. I don't know what. Where he's at, yeah. Uh, where, where, where he grew could, up. Could be here. Alaska, though. Yeah, it could be here. But there's also, you know, it would be, it'd be cool to, to know uh, folks from, from like, like this is their indigenous. Yeah. I know a couple of folks, but they're more, you know, it's like me, you know, I don't know too much about being yaki other i mean i know a little bit but i don't i don't know enough yeah. i'm sure there's a lot of yaki folks here i'm sure there's a lot of yaki yeah folks for sure because it, it's some others right there uh-huh. and i'm sure there's some cool kapa folks here too you know um but yeah i mean I, that that's one thing i want to know more about um but yeah that's it well, where can where can people follow you oh on on instagram at ernesto yerena you know, that's at Ernesto E R N E S T O, Yerena Y E R E N A, and yeah, check check me out, follow me, and um, they can buy your buy your art at um Conganas. Yeah, etroconganas dot com. Oh. If you go to my Instagram, you click on the link in my profile, it'll take you straight to my store. So real easy. Yeah, I yeah. I, I like the the name etroconganas and yeah, maybe like, motivation. I yeah. kind of like the story, you know, your grandpa telling my grandpa, you. Grandpa, yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes from my grandpa telling me actually ganas instead of. You know, instead of saying goodbye, that was always his, uh, his, his yeah, his kind of a signature out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's common down here. Like, Everyone says that. Yeah, it's common. Very common. Yeah. Or Ernesto, thank you for taking yeah. this time, man. Thank you, um, man. thank you for reaching out, man. I was really, like, taking it back this morning. I was like, what? It's but I know. I told, I told you I was going to do it. And I, I Sometimes I think people think I'm not. I'm like, no, but I, every time I come down here, it's like, I'm coming, I'm leaving. And yeah. I ended up. I was. I'm coming to my friend Danny's wedding on Saturday, and I was like, might as well. Uh, my parent, my brother, went out there for something uh, to LA. He, he had to take a class. Mm. My brother's a nurse, and um, on the way back, I was like, dude, let me just go with you. You know, so I just came down. I'm here early, and that's why I hit you up. I was like, oh, I got some time. Let's do it. Well, that's but, cool, man. I'm, I'm really thankful that you reached out. Um, and you took out. You took this hour and a half break, and then talk with me, and and. Yeah. and share your story and and um yeah i'm really excited um for the things you're you're, you're doing and and you know uh, look at your instagram on a daily and follow your oh, stories right. and shit and and um 
yeah so thank you so much thank you guys for listening and we'll see you in the next one all right brother take care peace